Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Can Dr. Karen ascertain how he was bewitched to nearly take the life of his son? Sax Romer Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you, and we really appreciate your support. We've set it up so that for a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. This way you can easily build out your classic audiobook library. And you get to help more folks like you discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be so glad you did. Thank you so much. And if you can't support us financially right now, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find us. And if you're looking for a unique gift for a book lover, or if you want something special for yourself, check out our merchandise store. For a limited time, you can save up to 35% off our merchandise. An Ivanhoe hoodie? A Pride and Prejudice gift bag? An Erudite Troglodyte mug? How about a sticker of The Great Gatsby? Pick up some fun stuff and be the perfect gift giver this holiday season. This weekend is one of the super fun weekends of the year. We get to see our kids up on stage. Goldie is in Tim Few's production of Tuck Everlasting. She isn't featured, she's in the ensemble, but to be in the ensemble is still so much fun. Scylla and I go to every show. Years ago, when Timphy was doing Into the Woods, Scylla designed and built some amazing trees for the high school. She took two 2x4s and made an X with them, putting casters on the bottom so it was basically a cart. In the center, she got a huge lag bolt, like a foot long, and bolted a 4x4 beam in the center for the trunk. I carved it to look organic and more tubular. Then, she ordered several miles of two-inch wooden dowels and cut them into a billion different pieces in different lengths and angles, attaching them into the trunk and each other, sculpting the shape of the tree with the dowels. Then, she stapled on a small forest of greenery onto the ends of the branches. Then we painted the wood. The result is an amazing piece of scenery that is solid and can be used for all sorts of productions. Tim Few has used them a lot over the years, and we're so happy they do. And they still credit Scylla as having made the trees in the program. Last week's story ended with Dr. Cairn nearly killing his son Robert. He was under the influence of a strange dream, and he thought 
that he was about to rid the world of Antony Ferrara. Now, father and son will begin to unpack the events of the night and compare notes. And now, The Night of the Necropolis, Part 5 of 8, by Sax Romer. A great disturbance had now arisen in the streets below. Streams of people, it seemed, were pouring towards the harbor. But Dr. Cairn pointed to an armchair. Sit down, Rob, he said. I will tell my story, and you shall tell yours. By comparing notes, we can arrive at some conclusion. Then we must act. This is a fight to a finish, and I begin to doubt if we are strong enough to win. He took up the dagger and ran a critical glance over it, from the keen point to the enameled hilt. This is unique, he muttered, whilst his son, spellbound, watched him. The blade is as keen as if tempered but yesterday, yet it was made full five thousand years ago, as the workmanship of the hilt testifies. Rob, we deal with powers more than human. We have to cope with a force which might have awed the greatest masters which the world has known. It would have called for all the knowledge and all the power of Apollonius of Tiana to have dealt with him. Antony Ferrara? Undoubtedly, Rob. It was by the agency of Antony Ferrara that the wireless message was sent to you from the P&O. It was by the agency of Antony Ferrara that I dreamt a dream tonight. In fact, it was no true dream. I was under the influence of, what shall I term it, hypnotic suggestion? To what extent that malign will was responsible for you and I being placed in rooms communicating by means of a balcony, we probably shall never know. But if this proximity was merely accidental, the enemy did not fail to take advantage of the coincidence. I lay watching the stars before I slept, and one of them seemed to grow larger as I watched. He began to pace about the room in growing excitement. Rob, I cannot doubt that a mirror or a crystal was actually suspended before my eyes by someone who had been watching for the opportunity. I yielded myself to the soothing influence, and thus deliberately deliberately placed myself in the power of Antony Ferrara. You think that he is here, in this hotel? I cannot doubt that he is in the neighborhood. The influence was too strong to have emanated from a mind at a great distance removed. I will tell you exactly what I dreamt. He dropped into a cane armchair. Comparative quiet reigned again in the streets below but a distant clamor told of some untoward happening at the harbor. Dawn would break ere long, and there was a curious rawness in the atmosphere. Robert Cairn seated himself upon the side of the bed and watched his father, whilst the latter related those happenings with which we are already acquainted. You think, sir, said Robert, at the conclusion of the strange story, that no part of your experience was real? Dr. Cairn held up the antique dagger, 
glancing at the speaker significantly. On the contrary, he replied, I do know that part of it was dreadfully real. My difficulty is to separate the real from the phantasmal. Silence fell for a moment. Then, It is almost certain, said the younger man, frowning thoughtfully, that you did not actually leave the hotel, but merely passed from your room to mine by way of the balcony. Dr. Cairn stood up, walked to the open window, and looked out, then turned and faced his son again. I believe I can put that matter to the test, he declared. In my dream, as I turned into the lane where the house was, the house of the mummy, there was a patch covered with deep mud, where at some time during the evening a quantity of water had been spilt. I stepped upon that patch, or dreamt that I did. We can settle the point. He sat down on the bed beside his son, and, stooping, pulled off one of his slippers. The night had been full enough of dreadful surprises, but here was yet another, which came to them as Dr. Cairn, with the inverted slipper in his hand, sat looking into his son's eyes. The sole of the slipper was caked with reddish-brown mud. Chapter 16 Lair of the Spiders We must find that house, find the sarcophagus, for I no longer doubt that it exists. Drag it out and destroy it. Should you know it again, sir? Beyond any possibility of doubt, it is the sarcophagus of a queen. What queen? A queen whose tomb the late Sir Michael Ferrara and I sought for many months, but failed to find. Is this queen well known in Egyptian history? Dr. Cairn stared at him with an odd expression in his eyes. Some histories ignore her existence entirely, he said, and with an evident desire to change the subject, added, I shall return to my room to dress now. Do you dress also? We cannot afford to sleep whilst the situation of that house remains unknown to us. Robert Cairn nodded, and his father stood up and went out of the room. Dawn saw the two of them peering from the balcony upon the streets of Port Said, already dotted with moving figures, for the Egyptian is an early riser. Have you any clue, asked the younger man, to the direction in which this place lies? Absolutely none, for the reason that I do not know where my dreaming left off and reality commenced. Did someone really come to my window and lead me out through another room downstairs and into the street, or did I wander out of my own accord and merely imagine the existence of the guide? In either event, I must have been guided in some way to a back entrance, for had I attempted to leave by the front door of the hotel in that trance-like condition, I should certainly have been detained by the Bawab. Suppose we commence then by inquiring if there is such another entrance. The hotel staff was already afoot, and their inquiries led to the discovery of an entrance communicating with the native servants' quarters. This could not be reached from the main hall, but there was a narrow staircase to the left of the lift shaft by which it might be gained. 
The two stood looking out across the stone-paved courtyard upon which the door opened. Beyond doubt, said Dr. Cairn, I might have come down that staircase and out by this door without arousing a soul, either by passing through my own room or through any other on that floor. They crossed the yard, where members of the kitchen staff were busily polishing various cooking utensils, and opened the gate. Dr. Cairn turned to one of the men nearby. Is this gate bolted at night? he asked in Arabic. The man shook his head and seemed to be much amused by the question, revealing his white teeth as he assured him that it was not. A narrow lane ran along behind the hotel, communicating with a maze of streets almost exclusively peopled by natives. Rob, said Dr. Cairn slowly, it begins to dawn upon me that this is the way I came. He stood looking to right and left, and seemed to be undecided. Then, we will try right, he determined. They set off along the narrow way. Once clear of the hotel wall, high buildings rose upon either side, so that at no time during the day could the sun have penetrated to the winding lane. Suddenly Robert Cairn stopped. Look, he said, and pointed. The mosque! You spoke of a mosque near to the house. Dr. Cairn nodded. His eyes were gleaming. Now that he felt himself to be upon the track of this great evil, which had shattered his peace. They advanced until they stood before the door of the mosque, and there, in the shadow of a low archway, was just such an ancient, iron-studded door as Dr. Cairn remembered. Latticed windows overhung the street above, but no living creature was in sight. He very gently pressed upon the door, but as he had anticipated it was fastened from within. In the vague light, his face seemed strangely haggard as he turned to his son, raising his eyebrows interrogatively. It is just possible that I may be mistaken, he said, so that I scarcely know what to do. He stood looking about him in some perplexity. Adjoining the mosque was a ruinous house, which clearly had had no occupants for many years. As Robert Cairn's gaze lighted upon its gaping window frames and doorless porch, he seized his father by the arm. We might hide up there he suggested, and watch for anyone entering or leaving the place opposite. I have little doubt that this was the scene of my experience, replied Dr. Cairn. Therefore I think we will adopt your plan. Perhaps there is some means of egress at the back. It will be useful if we have to remain on the watch for any considerable time. They entered the ruined building, and by means of a rickety staircase gained the floor above. It moved beneath them unsafely, but from the divan which occupied one end of the apartment, an uninterrupted view of the door below was obtainable. Stay here, said Dr. Cairn, and watch, whilst I reconnoiter. He descended the stairs again, to return in a minute or so, and announced that another street could be reached through the back of the house. There and then, they settled the plan of campaign. 
one at a time, they would go to the hotel for their meals, so that the door would never be unwatched throughout the day. Dr. Cairn determined to make no inquiries respecting the house, as this might put the enemy upon his guard. We are in his own country, Rob, he said. Here we can trust no one. Thereupon they commenced their singular and self-imposed task. In turn, they went back to the hotel for breakfast and watched fruitlessly throughout the morning. They lunched in the same way, and throughout the great midday heat sat hidden in the ruined building, mounting guard over that iron-studded door. It was a dreary and monotonous day, long to be remembered by both of them. And when the hour of sunset drew nigh, and their vigil remained unrewarded, they began to doubt the wisdom of their tactics. The street was but little frequented. There was not the slightest chance of their presence being discovered. It was very quiet, too, so that no one could have approached unheard. At the hotel, they had learnt the cause of the explosion during the night, an accident in the engine room of a tramp steamer, which had done considerable damage but caused no bodily injury. We may hope to win yet, said Dr. Cairn, in speaking of the incident. It was the hand of God. Silence had prevailed between them for a long time, and he was about to propose that his son should go back to dinner, when the rare sound of a footstep below checked the words upon his lips. Both craned their necks to obtain a view of the pedestrian. An old man, stooping beneath the burden of years and resting much of his weight upon a staff, came tottering into sight. The watchers crouched back, breathless with excitement, as the newcomer paused before the iron-studded door, and from beneath his cloak took out a big key. Inserting it into the lock, he swung open the door. It creaked upon ancient hinges as it opened inward, revealing a glimpse of a stone floor. As the old man entered, Dr. Cairn grasped his son by the wrist. Down, he whispered. Now is our chance. They ran down the rickety stairs, crossed the narrow street, and Robert Cairn cautiously looked in around the door which had been left ajar. Black against the dim light of another door at the further end of the large and barn-like apartment showed the stooping figure. Tap, tap, tap went the stick, and the old man had disappeared around a corner. Where can we hide? whispered Dr. Cairn. He is evidently making a tour of inspection. The sound of footsteps mounting to the upper apartments came to their ears. They looked about them right and left, and presently the younger man detected a large wooden cupboard set in one wall. Opening it, he saw that it contained but one shelf only near the top. When he returns, he said, we can hide in here until he has gone out. Dr. Cairn nodded. He was peering about the room intently. This is the place I came to, Rob, he said softly. But there was a stone stair leading down to some room underneath. We must find it. The old man could be heard passing from room to room above. Then his uneven footsteps sounded on the stair again, 
and glancing at one another, the two stepped into the cupboard and pulled the door gently inward. A few moments later, the old caretaker, since such appeared to be his office, passed out, slamming the door behind him. At that, they emerged from their hiding place and began to examine the apartment carefully. It was growing very dark now. Indeed, with the door shut, it was difficult to detect the outlines of the room. Suddenly, a loud cry broke the perfect stillness, seeming to come from somewhere above. Robert Cairn started violently, grasping his father's arm, but the older man smiled. You forget that there is a mosque almost opposite, he said. That is the Muad'Din. His son laughed shortly. My nerves are not yet all that they might be, he explained, and bending low began to examine the pavement. There must be a trap door in the floor, he continued. Don't you think so? His father nodded silently, and upon hands and knees also began to inspect the cracks and crannies between the various stones. In the right-hand corner furthest from the entrance, their quest was rewarded. A stone, some three feet square, moved slightly when pressure was applied to it, and gave up a sound of hollowness beneath the tread. Dust and litter covered the entire floor, but having cleared the top of this particular stone, a ring was discovered, lying flat in a circular groove cut to receive it. The blade of a penknife served to raise it from its resting place, and Dr. Cairn, standing astride across the trap, tugged at the ring, and without great difficulty raised the stone block from its place. A square hole was revealed, there were irregular stone steps leading down into the blackness. A piece of candle, stuck in a crude wooden holder, lay upon the topmost. Dr. Cairn, taking a box of matches from his pocket, very quickly lighted the candle, and with it held in his left hand, began to descend. His head was not yet below the level of the upper apartment when he paused. You have your revolver? he said. Robert nodded grimly and took his revolver from his pocket. A singular and most disagreeable smell was arising from the trap which they had opened. But ignoring this, they descended and presently stood side by side in a low cellar. Here the odor was almost insupportable. It had in it something menacing, something definitely repellent. And at the foot of the steps... They stood, hesitating. Dr. Cairn slowly moved the candle, throwing the light along the floor, where it picked out strips of wood and broken cases, straw packing and kindred litter, until it impinged upon a brightly painted slab. Further, he moved it, and higher, and at the end a sarcophagus came into view. He drew a quick hissing breath, and bending forward, directed the light into the interior of the ancient coffin. Then he had need of all his iron nerve to choke down the cry that rose to his lips. By God, look, whispered his son. Swathed in white wrappings, Antony Ferrara lay motionless before them.
the seconds passed one by one, until a whole minute was told, and still the two remained inert, and the cold light shone fully upon that ivory face. Is he dead? Robert Cairn spoke huskily, grasping his father's shoulder. I think not, was the equally hoarse reply. He is in the state of trance mentioned in certain ancient writings. He is absorbing evil force from the sarcophagus of the Witch Queen. There was a faint rustling sound in the cellar, which seemed to grow louder and more insistent. But Dr. Cairn apparently did not notice it, for he turned to his son, and albeit the latter could see him but vaguely, he knew that his face was grimly set. It seems like butchery, he said evenly. But in the interests of the world, we must not hesitate. A shot might attract attention. Give me your knife. For a moment, the other scarcely comprehended the full purport of the words. Mechanically, he took out his knife and opened the big blade. Good heavens, sir, he gasped breathlessly. It is too awful. Awful, I grant you, replied Dr. Cairn, but a duty, a duty, boy, and one that we must not shirk. I, alone among living men, know whom and what lies there, and my conscience directs me in what I do. His end shall be that which he had planned for you. Give me the knife. He took the knife from his son's hand. With the light directed upon the still ivory face, he stepped towards the sarcophagus. As he did so, something dropped from the roof, narrowly missed falling upon his outstretched hand, and with a soft, dull thud, dropped upon the mud-brick floor. Impelled by some intuition, he suddenly directed the light to the roof above. Then, with a shrill cry which he was wholly unable to repress, Robert Cairn seized his father's arm and began to pull him back towards the stair. Quick, sir! He screamed shrilly, almost hysterically. My God! My God! Be quick! The appearance of the roof above had puzzled him for an instant as the light touched it. Then, in the next, had filled his very soul with loathing and horror. For directly above them was moving a black, patch, a foot or so in extent, and it was composed of a dense, moving mass of tarantula spiders. A line of the disgusting creatures was mounting the wall and crossing the ceiling, ever swelling the unclean group. Dr. Cairn did not hesitate to leap for the stair, and as he did so, the spiders began to drop. Indeed, they seemed to leap towards the intruders, until the floor all about them and the bottom steps of the stair presented a mass of black, moving insects. A perfect panic of fear seized upon them. At every step, spiders crunched beneath their feet. They seemed to come from nowhere, to be conjured up out of the darkness, until the whole cellar, the stairs, the very fetid air about them, became black and nauseous with spiders. Halfway to the top, Dr. Cairn turned, snatched out a revolver, and began firing down into the cellar in the direction of the sarcophagus. A hairy, clutching thing ran up his arm, 
and his son, uttering a groan of horror, struck at it and stained the tweed with its poisonous blood. They staggered to the head of the steps, and there Dr. Cairn turned and hurled the candle at a monstrous spider that suddenly sprang into view. The candle, still attached to its wooden socket, went bounding down steps that now were literally carpeted with insects. Tarantulas began to run out from the trap, as if pursuing the intruders, and a faint light showed from below. Then came a crackling sound, and a wisp of smoke floated up. Dr. Cairn threw open the outer door, and the two panic-stricken men leapt out into the street and away from the spider army. White to the lips they stood leaning against the wall. Was it really... Ferrara? whispered Robert. I hope so, was the answer. Dr. Cairn pointed to the closed door. A fan of smoke was creeping from beneath it. The fire which ensued destroyed not only the house in which it had broken out, but the two adjoining, and the neighboring mosque was saved only with the utmost difficulty. When... In the dawn of the new day, Dr. Cairn looked down into the smoking pit, which once had been the home of the spiders. He shook his head and turned to his son. If our eyes did not deceive us, Rob, he said, a just retribution at last has claimed him. Pressing away through the surrounding crowd of natives, they returned to the hotel. A hall porter stopped them as they entered. Excuse me, sir he said. But which is Mr. Robert Cairn? Robert Cairn stepped forward. A young gentleman left this for you, sir, half an hour ago, said the man. A very pale gentleman, with black eyes. He said you dropped it. Robert Cairn unwrapped the little parcel. It contained a penknife. The ivory handle charred as if it had been in a furnace. It was his own which he had handed to his father in that awful cellar at the moment when the first spider had dropped, and a card was enclosed, bearing the penciled words, With Antony Ferrara's Compliments. Chapter 17 The Story of Ali Mohammed Saluting each of the three in turn, the tall Egyptian passed from Dr. Cairn's room. Upon his exit followed a brief but electric silence. Dr. Cairn's face was very stern, and Sime, with his hands locked behind him, stood staring out of the window into the palmy garden of the hotel. Robert Cairn looked from one to the other excitedly. What did he say, sir? he cried, addressing his father. It had something to do with... Dr. Cairn turned. Sime did not move. It had something to do with the matter which has brought me to Cairo, replied the former. Yes. You see, said Robert, my knowledge of Arabic is nil. Sime turned in his heavy fashion and directed a dull gaze upon the last speaker. Ali Mohammed, he explained slowly, who has just left had come down from the Fayum to report a singular matter. He was unaware of its real importance, but it was sufficiently unusual to disturb him, and Ali Mohammed Esuefi is not easily disturbed. 
Dr. Cairn dropped into an armchair, nodding towards Simei. Tell him all that we have heard, he said. We stand together in this affair. Well, continued Simei, in his deliberate fashion, when we struck our camp beside the Pyramid of Maidum, Ali Mohammed remained behind with a gang of workmen to finish off some comparatively unimportant work. He is an unemotional person. Fear is alien to his composition. It has no meaning for him. But last night something occurred at the camp, or what remained of the camp, which seems to have shaken even Ali Mohammed's iron nerve. Robert Cairn nodded, watching the speaker intently. The entrance to the Maydum Pyramid, continued Simei, one of the entrances, interrupted Dr. Cairn, smiling slightly. There is only one entrance, said Simei dogmatically. Dr. Cairn waved his hand. Go ahead, he said. We can discuss these archaeological details later. Simei stared dully, but without further comment, resumed. The camp was situated on the slope immediately below the only known entrance to the Maydum Pyramid. One might say that it lay in the shadow of the building. There are tumuli in the neighborhood, part of a prehistoric cemetery and it was work in connection with this which had detained Ali Mohammed in that part of the Fayum. Last night, about ten o'clock, he was awakened by an unusual sound, or series of sounds, he reports. He came out of the tent into the moonlight and looked up at the pyramid. The entrance was a good way above his head, of course, and quite fifty or sixty yards from the point where he was standing but the moonbeams bathed that side of the building in dazzling light, so that he was enabled to see a perfect crowd of bats whirling out of the pyramid. Bats! ejaculated Robert Cairn. Yes, there is a small colony of bats in this pyramid, of course, but the bat does not hunt in bands, and the sight of these bats flying out from the place was one which Ali Mohammed had never witnessed before. Their concerted squeaking was very clearly audible. He could not believe that it was this which had awakened him, and which had awakened the ten or twelve workmen who also slept in the camp, for these were now clustering around him, and all looking up at the side of the pyramid. Fayum nights are strangely still, except for the jackals and the village dogs, and some other sounds to which one grows accustomed. There is nothing— absolutely nothing audible. In this stillness, then, the flapping of the bat regiment made quite a disturbance overhead. Some of the men were only half awake, but most of them were badly frightened, and now they began to compare notes, with the result that they had determined upon the exact nature of the sound which had aroused them. It seemed almost certain that this had been a dreadful scream, the scream of a woman in the last agony. He paused, looking from Dr. Cairn to his son, with a singular expression upon his habitually immobile face. Go on, said Robert Cairn. Slowly, Simei resumed. The bats had begun to disperse in various directions, 
but the panic which had seized upon the camp does not seem to have dispersed so readily. Ali Muhammad confesses that he himself felt almost afraid, a remarkable admission for a man of his class to make. Picture these fellows, then, standing looking at one another, and very frequently up at the opening in the side of the pyramid. Then the smell began to reach their nostrils, the smell which completed the panic, and which led to the abandonment of the camp. The smell? What kind of smell? jerked Robert Cairn. Dr. Cairn turned himself in his chair, looking fully at his son. The smell of Hades, boy, he said grimly, and turned away again. Naturally, continued Sime, I can give you no particulars on the point, but it must have been something very fearful to have affected the Egyptian native. There was no breeze, but it swept down upon them, this poisonous smell, as though borne by a hot wind. Was it actually hot? I cannot say. But Ali Muhammad is positive that it came from the opening in the pyramid. It was not apparently in disgust, but in sheer, stark horror, that the whole crowd of them turned tail and ran. They never stopped and never looked back until they came to Rekka on the railway. A short silence followed. Then, That was last night? questioned Cairn. His father nodded. The man came in by the first train from Vasta, he said, and we have not a moment to spare. Sima stared at him. I don't understand. I have a mission, said Dr. Cairn quietly. It is to run to earth, to stamp out, as I would stamp out a pestilence, a certain thing. I cannot call it a man. Antony Ferrara. I believe, Sime, that you are at one with me in this matter. Sime drummed his fingers upon the table, frowning thoughtfully, and looking from one to the other of his companions under his lowered brows. With my own eyes, he said, I have seen something of this secret drama which has brought you, Dr. Cairn, to Egypt. And up to a point I agree with you regarding Antony Ferrara. You have lost all trace of him? Since leaving Port Said, said Dr. Cairn, I have seen and heard nothing of him. But Lady Lashmore, who was an intimate and an innocent victim, God help her, of Ferrara in London, after staying at the Semiramis in Cairo for one day, departed. Where did she go? What has Lady Lashmore to do with the matter? asked Sime. If what I fear be true, replied Dr. Cairn, but I anticipate. At the moment it is enough for me that, unless my information be at fault, Lady Lashmore yesterday left Cairo by the Luxor train at eight-thirty. Robert Cairn looked in a puzzled way at his father. What do you suspect, sir? he said. I suspect that she went no further than Wasta, replied Dr. Cairn. Still I do not understand, declared Sime. You may understand later, was the answer. 
We must not waste a moment. You Egyptologists think that Egypt has little or nothing to teach you. The Pyramid of Maidum lost interest directly you learnt that apparently it contained no treasure. How little you know what it really contained, Sime. Marietta did not suspect. Sir Gaston Maspero does not suspect. The late Sir Michael Ferrara and I once camped by the Pyramid of Maidum, as you have camped there, and we made a discovery. Well, said Sime, with growing interest, it is a point upon which my lips are sealed, but do you believe in black magic? I am not altogether sure that I do. Very well, you are entitled to your opinion. But although you appear to be ignorant of the fact, the Pyramid of Maidum was formerly one of the strongholds, the second greatest in all the land of the Nile, of ancient Egyptian sorcery. I pray heaven I may be wrong, but in the disappearance of Lady Lashmore, and in the story of Ali Mohammed, I see a dreadful possibility. Ring for a timetable. We have not a moment to waste. Chapter 18 The Bats Rekha was a mile behind. It will take us fully an hour yet, said Dr. Cairn, to reach the pyramid, although it appears so near. Indeed, in the violet dusk, the great Mastaba Pyramid of Maidum seemed already to loom above them, although it was quite four miles away. The narrow path along which they trotted their donkeys ran through the fertile lowlands of the Fayum. They had just passed a village, amid an angry chorus from the pariah dogs, and were now following the track along the top of the embankment. Where the green carpet merged ahead into the gray ocean of sand, the desert began, and out in that desert, resembling some weird work of nature, rather than anything wrought by the hand of man, stood the gloomy and lonely building ascribed by the Egyptologists to the pharaoh Sneferu. Dr. Cairn and his son rode ahead, and Sime, with Ali Mohammed, brought up the rear of the little company. I am completely in the dark, sir, said Robert Cairn respecting the object of our present journey. What leads you to suppose that we shall find Antony Ferrara here? I scarcely hope to find him here, was the enigmatical reply, but I am almost certain that he is here. I might have expected it, and I blame myself for not having provided against this. Against what? It is impossible, Rob, for you to understand this matter. Indeed, if I were to publish what I know, not what I imagine, but what I know, about the Pyramid of Maidum, I should not only call down upon myself the ridicule of every Egyptologist in Europe, I should be accounted mad by the whole world. His son was silent for a time. Then, according to the guidebooks, he said, it is merely an empty tomb. It is empty, certainly replied Dr. Cairn grimly, or that apartment known as the King's Chamber is now empty. But even the so-called King's Chamber was not empty once, and there is another chamber in the pyramid which is not empty now. If you know of the existence of such a chamber, sir, why have you kept it secret? 
because I cannot prove its existence. I do not know how to enter it, but I know it is there. I know what it was formerly used for, and I suspect that last night it was used for that same unholy purpose again, after a lapse of perhaps four thousand years. Even you would doubt me, I believe, if I were to tell you what I know, if I were to hint at what I suspect. But no doubt in your reading you have met with Julian the Apostate? Certainly. I have read of him. He is said to have practiced necromancy. When he was at Kara in Mesopotamia, he retired to the Temple of the Moon, with a certain sorcerer and some others, and, his nocturnal operations concluded, he left the temple locked, the door sealed, and placed a guard over the gate. He was killed in the war and never returned to Kara, but when, in the reign of Jovian, the seal was broken and the temple opened, a body was found, hanging by its hair. I will spare you the particulars. It was a case of that most awful form of sorcery, anthropomancy. An expression of horror had crept over Robert Cairn's face. Do you mean, sir, that this pyramid was used for similar purposes? In the past it has been used for many purposes, was the quiet reply. The exodus of the bats points to the fact that it was again used for one of those purposes last night. The exodus of the bats and something else. Sima, who had been listening to this strange conversation, cried out from the rear, we cannot reach it before sunset. No, replied Dr. Cairn, turning in his saddle. But that does not matter. Inside the pyramid, day and night make no difference. Having crossed a narrow wooden bridge, they turned now fully in the direction of the great ruin, pursuing a path along the opposite bank of the cutting. They rode in silence for some time, Robert Cairn deep in thought. I suppose that Antony Ferrara actually visited this place last night, he said suddenly, although I cannot follow your reasoning. But what leads you to suppose that he is there now? This, answered his father slowly. The purpose for which I believe him to have come here would detain him at least two days and two nights. I shall say no more about it, because if I am wrong— or if for any reason I am unable to establish my suspicions as facts, you would certainly regard me as a madman if I had confided those suspicions to you. Mounted upon donkeys, the journey from Rekka to the Pyramid of Medum occupies fully an hour and a half, and the glories of the sunset had merged into the violet dusk of Egypt before the party passed the outskirts of the cultivated land and came upon the desert sands. The mountainous pile of granite, its peculiar orange hue a ghastly yellow in the moonlight, now assumed truly monstrous proportions, seeming like a great square tower rising in three stages from its mound of sand to some three hundred and fifty feet above the level of the desert. There was nothing more awesome in the world than to find oneself at night far from all fellow men, in the shadow of one of those edifices 
raised by unknown hands, by unknown means, to an unknown end. For despite all the wisdom of our modern inquirers, these stupendous relics remain unsolved riddles set to posterity by a mysterious people. Neither Sime nor Ali Muhammad were of highly strong temperament, neither subject to those subtle impressions which more delicate organizations receive, as the nostrils receive an exhalation from such a place as this. But Dr. Cairn and his son, though each in a different way, came now within the aura of this temple of the dead ages. The great silence of the desert, a silence like no other in the world, the loneliness which must be experienced to be appreciated of that dry and tideless ocean, the traditions which had grown up like fungi about this venerable building. Lastly, the knowledge that it was associated in some way with the sorcery, the unholy activity of Antony Ferrara, combined to chill them with a supernatural dread which called for all their courage to combat. What now? said Sime, descending from his mount. We must lead the donkeys up the slope, replied Dr. Cairn, for those blocks of granite are, and tether them there. In silence, then, the party commenced the tedious ascent of the mound by the narrow path to the top, until at some hundred and twenty feet above the surrounding plain, they found themselves actually under the wall of the mighty building. The donkeys were made fast. Sime and I, said Dr. Cairn quietly, will enter the pyramid. But, interrupted his son, apart from the fatigue of the operation, continued the doctor, the temperature in the lower part of the pyramid is so tremendous and the air so bad that in your present state of health it would be absurd for you to attempt it, apart from which there is a possibly more important task to be undertaken here, outside. He turned his eyes upon Sime, who was listening intently, then continued, Whilst we are penetrating to the interior, by means of the sloping passage on the north side, Ali Mohammed and yourself must mount guard on the south side. What for? said Sime rapidly. For the reason, replied Dr. Cairn, that there is an entrance on to the first stage. But the first stage is nearly seventy feet above us. Even assuming that there were an entrance there, which I doubt, Escape by that means would be impossible. No one could climb down the face of the pyramid from above. No one has ever succeeded in climbing up. For the purpose of surveying the pyramid, a scaffold had to be erected. Its sides are quite unscalable. That may be, agreed Dr. Cairn. But nevertheless, I have my reasons for placing a guard over the south side. If anything appears upon the stage above, Rob, Anything. Shoot, and shoot straight. He repeated the same instructions to Ali Mohammed, to the evident surprise of the latter. I don't understand at all, muttered Sime. But as I presume you have a good reason for what you do, let it be as you propose. 
Can you give me any idea respecting what we may hope to find inside this place? I only entered once, and I am not anxious to repeat the experiment. The air is unbreathable. The descent to the level passage below is stiff work, and apart from the inconvenience of navigating the latter passage, which, as you probably know, is only sixteen inches high, the climb up the vertical shaft into the tomb is not a particularly safe one. I exclude the possibility of snakes, he added ironically. You have also omitted the possibility of Antony Ferrara, said Dr. Cairn. Pardon my scepticism, Doctor, but I cannot imagine any man voluntarily remaining in that awful place. Yet I am greatly mistaken if he is not there. Then he is trapped, said Sime grimly, examining a browning pistol which he carried. Unless— He stopped, and an expression, almost of fear, crept over his stoical features. That sixteen-inch passage, he muttered, with Antony Ferrara at the further end. Exactly, said Dr. Cairn. But I consider it my duty to the world to proceed. I warn you that you are about to face the greatest peril, probably, which you will ever be called upon to encounter. I do not ask you to do this. I am quite prepared to go alone. That remark was wholly unnecessary, Doctor, said Sime rather truculently. Suppose the other two proceed to their post. But, sir, began Robert Cairn. You know the way, said the doctor, with an air of finality. There is not a moment to waste, and although I fear that we are too late, it is just possible we may be in time to prevent a dreadful crime. The tall Egyptian and Robert Cairn went stumbling off amongst the heaps of rubbish and broken masonry, until an angle of the great wall concealed them from view. Then the two who remained continued the climb yet higher, following the narrow zigzag path leading up to the entrance of the descending passage. Immediately under the square black hole they stood and glanced at one another. We may as well leave our outer garments here, said Sime. I note that you wear rubber-soled shoes, but I shall remove my boots, as otherwise I should be unable to obtain any foothold. Dr. Cairn nodded, and without more ado, proceeded to strip off his coat, an example which was followed by Sime. It was as he stooped and placed his hat upon the little bundle of clothes at his feet that Dr. Cairn detected something which caused him to stoop yet lower and to peer at that dark object on the ground with a strange intentness. What is it? jerked Sime, glancing back at him. Dr. Cairn, from his hip pocket, took out an electric lamp and directed the white ray upon something lying on the splintered fragments of granite. It was a bat, a fairly large one, and a clot of blood marked the place where its head had been, for the bat was decapitated. As though anticipating what he should find there, Dr. Cairn flashed the ray of the lamp all about the ground in the vicinity of the entrance to the pyramid. Scores of dead bats, headless, lay there. For God's sake, what does this mean? whispered Sime. 
glancing apprehensively into the black entrance beside him. That means, answered Cairn in a low voice, that my suspicion, almost incredible though it seems, was well founded. Steel yourself against the task that is before you, Sime. We stand upon the borderland of strange horrors. Sime hesitated to touch any of the dead bats, surveying them with an ill-concealed repugnance. What kind of creature, he whispered, has done this? One of the kind that the world has not known for many ages. The most evil kind of creature conceivable. A man-devil. But what does he want with bats' heads? The Synonic Terrace, or Pyramid Bat, has a leaf-like appendage beside the nose. A gland in this secretes a rare oil. This oil is one of the ingredients of the incense which is never named in the magical writings. Sima shuddered. Here, said Dr. Cairn, proffering a flask. This is only the overture, no nerves. The other nodded shortly and poured out a peg of brandy. Now, said Dr. Cairn, shall I go ahead? As you like, replied Sime quietly, and again quite master of himself. Look out for snakes. I will carry the light, and you can keep yours handy in case you may need it. Dr. Cairn drew himself up into the entrance. The passage was less than four feet high, and generations of sandstorms had polished its sloping granite floor, so as to render it impossible to descend, except by resting one's hands on the roof above, and lowering oneself foot by foot. The passage of this description, descending at a sharp angle for over two hundred feet, is not particularly easy to negotiate, and progress was slow. Dr. Cairn at every five yards or so would stop, and with the pocket lamp which he carried, would examine the sandy floor and the crevices between the huge blocks composing the passage, in quest of those faint tracks which warned the traveler that a serpent has recently passed that way. Then, replacing his lamp, he would proceed. Sime followed in like manner, employing only one hand to support himself, and with the other, constantly directing the ray of his pocket torch past his companion, and down into the blackness beneath. Out in the desert, the atmosphere had been sufficiently hot, but now, with every step, it grew hotter and hotter. That indescribable smell, as of a decay begun in remote ages, that rises with the impalpable dust in these mysterious labyrinths of ancient Egypt, which never know the light of day, rose stiflingly, until at some forty or fifty feet below the level of the sand outside, respiration became difficult, and the two paused, bathed in perspiration and gasping for air. Another thirty or forty feet, panted Sime, and we shall be in the level passage. There is a sort of low, artificial cavern there, you may remember, where, although we cannot stand upright, we can sit and rest for a few moments. Speech was exhausting, 
and no further words were exchanged until the bottom of the slope was reached, and the combined lights of the two pocket lamps showed them that they had reached a tiny chamber irregularly hewn in the living rock. This also was less than four feet high, but its jagged floor being level, they were enabled to pause here for a while. Do you notice something unfamiliar in the smell of the place? Dr. Cairn was the speaker. Simei nodded, wiping the perspiration from his face the while. It was bad enough when I came here before, he said hoarsely. It is terrible work for a heavy man, but tonight it seems to be reeking. I have smelt nothing like it in my life. Correct, replied Dr. Cairn grimly. I trust that, once clear of this place, you will never smell it again. What is it? It is the incense, was the reply. Come, the worst of our task is before us yet. The continuation of the passage now showed as an opening no more than fifteen to seventeen inches high. It was necessary, therefore, to lie prone upon the rubbish of the floor and to proceed serpent fashion. One could not even employ one's knees, so low was the roof, but was compelled to progress by clutching at the irregularities in the wall and by digging the elbows into the splintered stones one crawled upon. For three yards or so they proceeded thus. Then Dr. Cairn lay suddenly still. What is it? whispered Simei. A threat of panic was in his voice. He dared not conjecture what would happen if either should be overcome in that evil-smelling burrow, deep in the bowels of the ancient building. At that moment it seemed to him, absurdly enough, that the weight of the giant pile rested upon his back, was crushing him, pressing the life out from his body as he lay there prone, with his eyes fixed upon the rubber soles of Dr. Cairn's shoes directly in front of him. But softly came a reply. Do not speak again. Proceed as quietly as possible, and pray heaven we are not expected. Sima understood. With a malignant enemy before them, this hole in the rock through which they crawled was a certain death-trap. He thought of the headless bats, and of how he, in crawling out into the shaft ahead, must lay himself open to a similar fate. Dr. Cairn moved slowly onward. Despite their anxiety to avoid noise, neither he nor his companion could control their heavy breathing. Both were panting for air. The temperature was now deathly. A candle would scarcely have burnt in the vitiated air. And above that odor of ancient rottenness, which all explorers of the monuments of Egypt know, rose that other, indescribable odor, which seemed to stifle one's very soul. Dr. Cairn stopped again. Sime knew, having performed this journey before, that his companion must have reached the end of the passage, that he must be lying, peering out into the shaft for which they were making. He extinguished his lamp. Again Dr. Cairn moved forward. Stretching out his hand, Simei found only emptiness. He wriggled forward in turn rapidly 
all the time groping with his fingers. Then, take my hand, came a whisper. Another two feet, and you can stand upright. He proceeded, grasped the hand which was extended to him in the impenetrable darkness, and panting, temporarily exhausted, rose upright beside Dr. Cairn and stretched his cramped limbs. Side by side they stood, mantled about in such a darkness as cannot be described, in such a silence as dwellers in the busy world cannot conceive, in such an atmosphere of horror that only a man morally and physically brave could have retained his composure. Dr. Cairn bent to Simei's ear. We must have the light for the ascent, he whispered. Have your pistol ready. I am about to press the button of the lamp. A shaft of white light shone suddenly up the rocky sides of the pit in which they stood and lost itself in the gloom of the chamber above. On to my shoulders, jerked Sime. You are lighter than I. Then as soon as you can reach, place your lamp on the floor above and mount up beside it. I will follow. Dr. Cairn, taking advantage of the rugged walls and of the blocks of stone amid which they stood, mounted upon Simei's shoulders. Could you carry your revolver in your teeth? asked the latter. I think you might hold it by the trigger guard. I proposed to do so, replied Dr. Cairn grimly. Stand fast. Gradually, he rose upright upon the other's shoulders. Then, placing his foot in a cranny of the rock, and with his left hand grasping a protruding fragment above, he mounted yet higher, all the time holding the lighted lamp in his right hand. Upward he extended his arms, and upward, until he could place the lamp upon the ledge above his head, where its white beam shone across the top of the shaft. Mind it does not fall, panted Sime, craning his head upward to watch these operations. Dr. Cairn, whose strength and agility were wonderful, twisted around sideways and succeeded in placing his foot on a ledge of stone on the opposite side of the shaft. Resting his weight upon this, he extended his hand to the lip of the opening and drew himself up to the top, where he crouched fully in the light of the lamp. Then, wedging his foot into a crevice a little below him, he reached out his hand to Sime. The latter, following much the same course as his companion, seized the extended hand, and soon found himself beside Dr. Cairn. Impetuously, he snatched out his own lamp and shone its beams about the weird apartment in which they found themselves, the so-called King's Chamber of the Pyramid. Right and left leapt the searching rays, touching the ends of the wooden beams, which, practically fossilized by long contact with the rock, still survive in that sepulchral place. Above and below and all around, he directed the light, upon the litter covering the rock floor, upon the blocks of the higher walls, upon the frowning roof. They were alone in the king's chamber. Chapter 19 Anthropomancy there is no one here. Sime looked about the place excitedly. Fortunately for us, answered Dr. Cairn. 
He breathed rather heavily yet with his exertions, and moreover, the air of the chamber was disgusting. But otherwise he was perfectly calm, although his face was pale and bathed in perspiration. Make as little noise as possible. Sime, who now that the place proved to be empty, began to cast off that dread which had possessed him in the passageway, found something ominous in the words. Dr. Cairn, stepping carefully over the rubbish of the floor, advanced to the east corner of the chamber, waving his companion to follow. Side by side they stood there. Do you notice that the abominable smell of the incense is more overpowering here than anywhere? Simei nodded. You are right. What does that mean? Dr. Cairn directed the ray of light down behind a little mound of rubbish into a corner of the wall. It means, he said, with a subdued expression of excitement, that we have got to crawl in there. Simes stifled an exclamation. One of the blocks of the bottom tier was missing, a fact which he had not detected before by reason of the presence of the mound of rubbish before the opening. Silence again, whispered Dr. Cairn. He lay down flat, and without hesitation crept into the gap. As his feet disappeared, Simei followed. Here it was possible to crawl upon hands and knees. The passage was formed of square stone blocks. It was but three yards or so in length. Then it suddenly turned upward at a tremendous angle of about one in four. Square footholds were cut in the lower face. The smell of incense was almost unbearable. Dr. Cairn bent to Simei's ear. Not a word now, he said. No light. Pistol ready. He began to mount. Simei, following, counted the steps. When they had mounted sixty, he knew that they must have come close to the top of the original Mastaba, and close to the first stage of the pyramid. Despite the shaft beneath, there was little danger of falling, for one could lean back against the wall while seeking for the foothold above. Dr. Cairn mounted very slowly, fearful of striking his head upon some obstacle. Then, on the seventieth step, he found that he could thrust his foot forward and that no obstruction met his knee. They had reached a horizontal passage. Very softly, he whispered back to Simei, Take my hand. I have reached the top. They entered the passage. The heavy, sickly sweet odor almost overpowered them. But grimly set upon their purpose, they, after one moment of hesitancy, crept on. A fitful light rose and fell ahead of them. It gleamed upon the polished walls of the corridor in which they now found themselves that inexplicable light burning in a place which had known no light since the dim ages of the early pharaohs. The events of that incredible night had afforded no such emotion as this. This was the crowning wonder, and, in its dreadful mystery, the crowning terror of Medum. When first that lambent light played upon the walls of the passage, both stopped 
stricken motionless with fear and amazement. Sime, who would have been prepared to swear that the Maydum Pyramid contained no apartment other than the king's chamber, now was past mere wonder, past conjecture, but he could still fear. Dr. Cairn, although he had anticipated this, temporarily also fell a victim to the supernatural character of the phenomenon. They advanced. They looked into a square chamber of about the same size as the king's chamber. In fact, although they did not realize it until later, this second apartment no doubt was situated directly above the first. The only light was that of a fire burning in a tripod, and by means of this illumination, which rose and fell in a strange manner, it was possible to perceive the details of the place. But indeed, at the moment they were not concerned with these. They had eyes only for the black-robed figure beside the tripod. It was that of a man, who stood with his back towards them, and he chanted monotonously in a tongue unfamiliar to Sime. At certain points in his chant, he would raise his arms in such a way that, clad in the black robe, he assumed the appearance of a gigantic bat. Each time that he acted thus, the fire in the tripod, as if fanned into new life, would leap up, casting a hellish glare about the place. Then, as the chanter dropped his arms again, the flame would drop also. A cloud of reddish vapor floated low in the apartment. There were a number of curiously shaped vessels upon the floor and against the farther wall, only rendered visible when the flames leapt high, was some motionless white object, apparently hung from the roof. Dr. Cairn drew a hissing breath and grasped Sime's wrist. We are too late, he said strangely. He spoke at a moment when his companion, peering through the ruddy gloom of the place, had been endeavoring more clearly to perceive that ominous shape which hung, horrible, in the shadow. He spoke, too, at a moment when the man in the black robe raised his arms, when, as if obedient to his will, the flames leapt up fitfully. Although Sime could not be sure of what he saw, the recollection came to him of words recently spoken by Dr. Cairn. He remembered the story of Julian the Apostate, Julian the Emperor, the Necromancer. He remembered what had been found in the Temple of the Moon after Julian's death. He remembered that Lady Lashmore, and thereupon he experienced such a nausea that but for the fact that Dr. Cairn gripped him, he must have fallen. Tutored in a materialistic school, he could not even now admit that such monstrous things could be with a necromantic operation taking place before his eyes, with the unholy perfume of the secret incense all but suffocating him, with the dreadful oracle dully gleaming in the shadows of that temple of evil, his reason would not accept the evidences. Any man of the ancient world, of the Middle Ages, would have known that he looked upon a professed wizard, upon a magician, who, according to one of the most ancient formulae known to mankind, was seeking to question the dead, respecting the living.
but how many modern men are there capable of realizing such a circumstance? How many who would accept the statement that such operations are still performed, not only in the East, but in Europe? How many who, witnessing this mass of Satan, would accept it for verity, would not deny the evidence of their very senses? He could not believe such an orgy of wickedness possible. A pagan emperor might have been capable of these things, but today? Wondrous is our faith in the virtue of today. Am I mad? he whispered hoarsely. Or? A thinly veiled shape seemed to float out from that still form in the shadows. It assumed definite outlines. It became a woman, beautiful, with a beauty that could only be described as awful. She wore upon her brow the uraeus of ancient Egyptian royalty. Her sole garment was a robe of finest gauze. Like a cloud, like a vision, she floated into the light cast by the tripod. A voice, a voice which seemed to come from a vast distance, from somewhere outside the mighty granite walls of that unholy place, spoke. The language was unknown to Sime, but the fierce hand grip upon his wrist grew fiercer. That dead tongue, that language unspoken since the dawn of Christianity, was known to the man who had been the companion of Sir Michael Ferrara. In upon Sime swept a swift conviction that one could not witness such a scene as this and live and move again amongst one's fellow men. In a sort of frenzy, then, he wrenched himself free from the detaining hand and launched a retort of modern science against the challenge of ancient sorcery. Raising his browning pistol, he fired, shot after shot, at that bat-like shape which stood between himself and the tripod. A thousand frightful echoes filled the chamber with a demon mockery, boomed along those subterranean passages beneath, and bore the conflict of sound into the hidden places of the pyramid which had known not sound for untold generations. My God! Vaguely he became aware that Dr. Cairn was seeking to drag him away. Through a cloud of smoke he saw the black-robed figure turn dream fashion. He saw the pallid, glistening face of Antony Ferrara, the long, evil eyes, a light like the eyes of a serpent, were fixed upon him. He seemed to stand amid a chaos, in a mad world beyond the borders of reason, beyond the dominions of God. But to his stupefied mind, one astounding fact found access. He had fired at least seven shots at the black-robed figure, and it was not humanly possible that all could have gone wide of their mark. Yet Antony Ferrara lived. Utter darkness blotted out the evil vision. Then there was a white light ahead, and feeling that he was struggling for sanity, Sime managed to realize that Dr. Cairn, retreating along the passage, was crying to him, in a voice rising almost to a shriek, to run, run for his life, for his salvation. You should not have fired, he seemed to hear. Unconscious of any contact with the stones, 
although afterwards he found his knees and shins to be bleeding, he was scrambling down that long, sloping shaft. He had a vague impression that Dr. Cairn, descending beneath him, sometimes grasped his ankles and placed his feet into the footholds. A continuous roaring sound filled his ears, as if a great ocean were casting its storm waves against the structure around him. The place seemed to rock. Down, flat! Some sense of reality was returning to him. Now he perceived that Dr. Cairn was urging him to crawl back along the short passage by which they had entered from the king's chamber. Heedless of hurt, he threw himself down and pressed on. A blank, like the sleep of exhaustion which follows delirium, came. Then Sime found himself standing in the king's chamber, Dr. Cairn, who held an electric lamp in his hand beside him and half supporting him the realities suddenly reasserting themselves. I have dropped my pistol, muttered Sime. He threw off the supporting arm and turned to that corner behind the heap of debris where was the opening through which they had entered the satanic temple. No opening was visible. He has closed it, cried Dr. Cairn. There are six stone doors between here and the place above. If he had succeeded in shutting one of them before we... My God, whispered Sime, let us get out. I am nearly at the end of my tether. Fear lends wings, and it was with something like the lightness of a bird that Sime descended the shaft. At the bottom, onto my shoulders, he cried, looking up. Dr. Cairn lowered himself to the foot of the shaft. You go first, he said. He was gasping, as if nearly suffocated, but retained a wonderful self-control. Once over into the borderland, and bravery assumes a new guise. The courage which can face physical danger undaunted melts in the fires of the unknown. Sime, his breath whistling sibilantly between his clenched teeth, hauled himself through the low passage with incredible speed. The two worked their way arduously up the long slope. They saw the blue sky above them. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Night of the Necropolis, Part 5 of 8, by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter. For only $5 a month, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other folks to find our show. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.